Good afternoon. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, you took yes. two of. I was supposed to say at least oh, one of those sorry. somewhere. So sorry. yeah, it actually is right now evening. No, nope, it's good. <laughs> and uh, if if you are listening to it in the morning, good for you. Right? Yes, good for you. Yes. Yep. I like to listen to my podcast <clears throat> in the evening personally. Mm. So this is Myth Take episode seven on our mythological tour of the solar system. I am Allison Innes, and I am Darren Sundstrom. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done this. Yeah. A little bit of a break. Um, hope it, hopefully all our listeners are enjoying their summer holidays or winter, I suppose, if you're in the in the other side of the hemisphere. Southern hemisphere. Yeah. Um, so we actually put mugs outside tonight, so she can't, uh, she's not going to commentate for us. But I'm kind of excited about, to, about tonight's topic. Why is that? We are talking about Mars. Oh, again, another one that has been a, a real problem. Yes. Or, you know, doing the doing the research for this one and reading around on the internet and from the various primary sources that we that we have, it's been a pretty odd, a bit of a pickle. This one. Yeah. yeah. Mars is a bit difficult to do as mythologically speaking. As mythologically from, uh, speaking, as far as ancient literature but is concerned. From the but from the scientific side, side of things, we have oodles of data. Oodles right? and oodles. If, if it was an astrological or astronomical podcast, then. You know, we 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 you know we'd be right on par with that. But yeah, we'd be doing great. Yeah, we'd be doing great. Well, there's so a, there is some astrological information. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So why don't we start with our usual rundown of the kind of the what what does NASA tell us about Mars? Yeah, totally. Okay, so this is just like a drop in the bucket of what there is to say about about Mars. About the red planet. Yes, and do you know why it is a red planet? Uh, apparently there's lots of iron oxide uh, and dust uh, and yes. massive planetary dust storms on occasion. Yeah. Uh, so it's always had this uh, fiery, fiery glow, right? Mm -hmm. I think pyrosis means the fiery one. The Latins call it that. In reference to oh, okay. Aphrodite's capacity to inflame Mars with love. We're going to learn yeah. all about that today. Yeah, oh, it's going to get things, hot and right? steamy again well, today. You thought yeah. Venus was hot and steamy. This is going to. Well, this <laughs> is the male side of things. <laughs> this is exactly. Yeah, I both. So, oh, men are inside. from Mars and women are from Venus. Oh, well, hey, yeah. there we go. We should add yeah. that into the footnotes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it doesn't come out of out of the other out of nowhere. No, absolutely. So yeah, so it's it's called the red planet because of the iron oxide or um, or rust uh, in a more colloquial term. Rust. Rust um, never sleeps. Yeah. Yes. Brightest object in the night sky, aside from the moon. So fairly easy to find if you know where you're looking. I never know where I'm looking, but you're pretty good at finding those things. Yeah, we pick them out on occasion. Yeah. Um, Mars is really fascinating because it's so much like Earth. Uh, it's But it's smaller and drier and a heck of a lot colder. So it's about half the size of Earth. Oh, really? It's only half. <clears throat> it is 6,779 kilometers in diameter. Hey, that's a good size, you know. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. Um, and people, and it's got like light light areas and dark areas Yeah, on and there's it. all kinds of weird So people stuff. had, had uh, speculated, I'll talk about a little bit more about this oh, in, in yeah. a minute, but... but the in, canals, the canales. Yeah, so once once people yeah. had uh, telescopes and could see things um, more clearly, they um, they thought the things. light and dark areas were vegetation. Oh, vegetation. So okay. they had this idea that Mars was another Earth and that there were little Martians. Yeah, they're of Martians. Some sort you know, your Venusians and your Martians. These <laughs> two have been you know linked to so, extraterrestrial life. So the surface of Mars is there's no flowing water on Mars. Um, so it's all terrestrial. That it's, we know of. That we know of. There has um, probably like billions of years ago. But there not might current. still be now. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I'm okay. not going to argue okay. that. I'm not. Okay. I'm not a scientist. Okay. 
But um, anyway, so Mars is shaped by volcanoes. It's got impact craters, um, crustal movement, so like earthquakes and, mm-hmm. well, Mars quakes and that kind of thing. Ooh, um, awesome. Atmosphere, the dust storms shape the surface, and it's got like canyons as well. So its atmosphere is mostly composed of carbon dioxide or something, um, right? You're jumping ahead of my notes here. Oh, sorry, Katie. Yeah. Um, I know it's very thin it's, and very yes, cold. Yes, it's, it's very cold and it's thin and it's predominantly carbon dioxide. Yes, okay, yeah. carbon dioxide. So it's actually, the atmosphere itself is too thin for water to exist. Right. The water would just be like whipped off into sure. space or something. Yeah. Okay. Or freeze. Like, we'll get a letter from, a, from oh, an probably, astronomer yeah, like letting us know. Polar caps okay. or frozen ice. Or well, oh, hang on, on a minute. Hang oh, on a minute. Okay. Right. So Mars has seasons because it's it's tilted on its axis like the Earth. Yeah. So it has seasons and the polar yeah. ice grows and shrinks mm-hmm. as it goes through these seasons. Mm-hmm. So there is icy matter on Mars. Yeah. Um, they call it, they, they don't, but they don't call it ice. Did I write down what the scientists call it's it? Probably some they, kind of frozen gas. No, 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 no. No, it's it's frozen water, but oh. they don't call it ice. They oh. call it something else. Anyway, okay. So, um, so the orbit, Mars's orbit, is elliptical, and so its distance from the sun changes, and so the seasons vary in length because of the shape of its orbit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, from Earth's perspective, on when you're watching on Earth, because of the difference in the shape of its orbit. Um, to Earth, it sometimes actually appears to go backwards. Yes, retrograde. Um, which, of course, gets um, associated as all kinds of portents and oh. auguries and all kinds of things like that. Bad news. And do you know what the largest volcano, the largest volcano yes. in our solar system is on Mars, and it is called? Olympus Mons. Yes. yes. Okay. So Mons the is... the size of the state of Arizona. Ooh. Nice. I, I did a little bit of that scientific research myself yes. because Good. of the paucity of literary <laughs> evidence. <laughs> uh, so Mons is the term that they use for mountains. Yes. In, um, I think that's just the Latin word. Yeah. Um, on planets. And so Olympus. And um, hey, for Mount mythology, Olympus. Olympus is the home of the gods. Why so not? the biggest, the biggest known volcano in our solar system is is uh, is named Mars. after Olympus. Yeah. So Mars has two moons, Phobos, yep. which means fear, mm-hmm. and Deimos, which means panic. Absolutely. And what? Why did they pick those two names? Do you know? Well, they're they're the sons of Ares and Aphrodite. They are attendants in battle. They are fear and panic and rout and so on and all the sort of various incarnations of of fear that are visited. Uh, and evidenced on the war uh, in war and on the battlefield, now, and they accompany him on his chariot and so on and so forth. Now NASA, <clears throat> now the NASA website said that those are actually the names of his horses. Yeah, well they're what incorrect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, we yeah. better not tell NASA. <laughs> yeah, well you know it'd be nice, right? Yeah, but uh, I, uh, well you know there there are there are different attributions to their genealogy, but um, for example, also. Uh, um, there's a goddess named Enyo, which is uh, fear and often mm-hmm. associated with Ares uh, on the battlefield. But they are sons, right, that, you know, do dad's work, assist in dad's work. And um, they are, um, you know, kind of, that's about it. That's okay. all we really know. I, I, okay. One little factoid about them, which I thought was cool, is because of their mother, they're always like, you know, this, the, in mythology, as in history and so on, you know, people say that the children often take after the father. What are the aspects of the mother? And since the mother is Aphrodite, the fear of the love lost on the battlefield is the association oh. with Phoebus and Demos. Okay. So if you lose a loved one in battle, that's sort of the connection between Aphrodite. Okay, right? that makes sense. Yeah. So okay. that's about it there. There's not much going on. I do know they're I captured see. asteroids, though. They're not true moons. Oh, well, they're potato-shaped. Oh, yes, oh, so they probably oh. are. Ca- yes, yes. Potato-shaped. Yes. Potato-shaped. Apparently, there's a lot of <laughs> potato-shaped objects in that's our... That's a good way of describing it. Yeah, but, know, but, kind of... but potato shapes are kind of... They could be really anything, at least in my garden. Potato mm-hmm. shapes wind up being all... Yeah. I suppose if you're buying them at the supermarket sure. where they've all been but sorted But they're not out. spheroid, yeah. right? No. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so they are probably captured, mm-hmm. captured asteroids. <clears throat> So, um, Mars has no global magnetic field, so your compass wouldn't work. Fascinating. Um, but evidence in kind of like the minerals and stuff that the rovers are studying mm-hmm. suggests that there 
probably was about four billion years ago. Right. We had a magnetic field at the time. Yes. Um, they think scientists think that about three and a half billion years ago there were huge floods on Earth on Earth on Mars, uh -huh. which created some some of these canyons and stuff. Oh, here it is. That's they call awesome. it. It's not. They call it frozen water ice. It's not ice. Frozen, it's frozen water, water ice. ice. Yeah. Frozen water. Yeah. Ice. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It. We'll it's more to, specific, I guess. If, if you ice. know what that means, then you know you're going to have to send us a, twi a Twitter okay. message and okay. DM us at MythTake. Um, yeah. So Mars and Earth are 56 million kilometers apart at oh. their closest point. And I just want to note for That's those of you. That's not far at all. No, for those of you who can time travel, if you go back to <laughs> May 30th, so to, today we're recording this June 7th, um, May 30th. Yep was that point where they're at the closest. closest. And because the orbits are different yeah. shapes, that closest point isn't, like, it doesn't come up every, like, all the time, right? Sure. Like, it's not a regular it's thing. Not a regular so thing. the last time they were closest was May 30th. Well, that's pretty good, because that means we're sort of right on track. I know. Like, if it was the other side of the calendar, there would be real no significance to it. But since it was only, like, a week ago, like, if we can really toot our own horn about that. And there's going to be... be you know, in synchronicity with some, the cosmos. There's going to be some yeah. cool stuff happening with Jupiter soon, too. Oh, good. Right? We'll have to get to so, Jupiter by yeah. then. Um, so temperatures on Mars, 20 degrees Celsius, nice uh -huh. and balmy, to minus 153 Celsius. So for our American friends, 70 degrees Fahrenheit to minus 225 Fahrenheit. That's a cold day. That yeah. is very cold. Although, well, I think the cold, coldest recorded temperature on Earth is minus 140. So it's within the realm of understanding. Yeah, but it's not within the realm of living. <laughs> no, not really. But you know, it's not really very conducive to a comfortable <laughs> yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. But it's it, it is a okay. Never mind. That's okay. never mind. Okay, yeah. So one year is one point nine Earth years. Yeah. So almost almost two Earth years. I'd for be one half year. as old. Six hundred and eighty-seven Earth days. Is, right on. One, one year on Mars. One I can get day, used to that. One day on Mars, though, is almost the same as Earth. It's yep. 24.623. Not a problem. And the fancy word is a sol, S-O-L. Sol or sol? Sol. Sol? This, this means okay, sol. Sun. Yeah, so sun. That means a Martian day. That's what oh. they talk about. The sol is 24.623. So is that a terminology they use for all planets to indicate the length of its day? I don't know. Oh, I, but I'm going to bet. I'm going to put, put money on that. I'm inclined to agree with you, we, but we do but have I'll someone my, who we can talk about. Yeah, um, we'll, who we'll will give find, us that kind of data yeah. in a in later date. Twitter is great for finding yeah. astronomers. Yeah, gravity thirty eight percent of Earth. So on our mugs a meter, mm -hmm. eight pound. And by the way, she was terribly behaved at her mug at her vet appointment recently. She managed to give a good swat at the vet and tear his glove mm -hmm. with her claws. Anyway, she actually weighs nine pounds, not eight pounds. But anyway. We're, How much we're, does she weigh on Mars? That's what I really want. We're going to stick with eight pounds because yep. that's what we've been doing. So eight <clears throat> pounds is 3.04 pounds on Mars. Nice and slim. So light as a feather. Light as a feather. Light as a feather. Yep. Long, long walks in the Martian countryside. <laughs> so this is where we get really interesting stuff um, in, when we're talking about Mars. Is mm -hmm. when we start talking and thinking about the missions to Mars. According to ah. NASA, there have been, or the NASA website, mm -hmm. and I'll put a link in the show notes, 46 missions to Mars. That's a lot of attention that's on a one lot, little planet. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, curiosity. Um, some of you may remember all the news about Mars Curiosity. Oh, and I you do. can That's follow... the one the aliens got, right? <laughs> you can follow Mars Curiosity on Twitter. It has its own Twitter account. Oh, I, that's okay. That's the rover that's up there? Yeah. Okay. I thought so... you were talking about the one we lost before that, that the aliens got. I'm not um, sure what the name of that one was. I, yeah, I, I don't really know just what you're talking about. just went off course and went beep, beep, okay. and then, pfft, that was it. And we're like, great. Um, it, it might be. I don't know. Because I think, I gathered from what I read that only Spirit and Opportunity are active on Mars. Sure. But I don't know. We'll need some, we need an expert here. Okay. So Curiosity launched November 6, 2011. It mm -hmm. landed on Mars August 6, 2012. Yep. And its goal was to determine if Mars had ever been able to support microbial life. Right. So then, evidence this, of which we had already determined from Earth, which piqued our curiosity because of yeah, the so, meteorites that we studied. Yeah, so they're look, you know, lo looking at the stuff that's actually right. there. My, yeah. Spirit and Opportunity were the twin rovers that mm -hmm. were actually before that, mm -hmm. and I they launched in. <clears throat> 
They launched fairly close together in July of 2003, and they landed on Mars in January of 2004. And they were looking for at the geology of Mars and evidence for water activity. Yeah. So humans have not uh, have not made it to Mars yet. It would be a long trip. I think I want to say nine months or something. It's a, it's a long way out there. Uh, yeah, well, it could be seven to nine no, months. I don't know. No, Depends well, it, on how fast you're going. To be honest. Yeah. Current anyway, technology it, though, it's a long way. It wouldn't be. Yeah. So, uh, but we can send robots and stuff there. Sure. And we've, so we've done 46 missions. Some of the early, early missions um, I, that I read about, like some of the Soviet missions and those really early ones, didn't really work very well. But that's how science goes. You yeah, but we've been sending mistakes. probes out there since the 70s, right? Yeah. They've been orbiting yeah. and taking I think pictures it was the and stuff. We've Vikings, mapped it. The Viking. There was a Viking, Viking mission. Probe yeah, or Viking. Yeah, first. absolutely. Yeah. And I think anyway. Voyager blasted a couple pictures as it went yeah. by. Yeah, so we, yeah. you know, we we it, it's funny how many how many missions was that again? Forty six. Forty six. That's a number we got to put in the old data bank of the brain there because yeah. I can I can guarantee. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet <laughs> that there's been no other planet in the solar system that's been studied or observed or this much attention paid to it yeah. than Mars. That's well, and my, Mars that's gonna be my guess. Mars is. I guess it's the last of the planets that we look at that's visible with by with the naked eye. So it was known to the ancients. Well, that's or, not entirely true. No, but, uh, it, no, that's it, wrong. Yeah, okay. it's one I of think, the naked eye planets. But it is one of the naked uh, eye, seven, eye planets, I think. familiar, yeah. to, familiar to and fascinated the ancients. Yes, and I came across absolutely. this blog post by Bob McDonald, who does a great show on on CBC Radio in Canada called Quirks and Quarks, mm-hmm. also on podcast. And um, it was just about the the closest approach, Mars's closest approach to Earth, being May thirtieth with. Mm. the closest since it had been since 2005. Yep. And um, anyway, so the ancients had noticed that during certain times, Mars is brighter than at other times, depending on how close it is. And that the, and as we mentioned, it looks like it backs up, it, like the, the retrograde motion, and it kind of wanders. Yeah. Um, and so they attach significance <laughs> to these things. Um, once Galileo and telescopes come along, as we mentioned, the, they start noticing these dark and light patches and thinking it's vegetation. And then as telescopes improve, then they notice channels. And um, uh, some scientist, I forget his, I didn't write his name down, but there was one particular scientist who's really pushed this as these are artificial canals on Mars. Yes. And if there's artificial canals, that means there's intelligent life right. that can produce it rather yeah. than just um, yeah. <clears throat> natural occurring. Totally. Um, so H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. If, anybody, if you haven't read that or listened to that radio play, it's a great one. That is based on Mars and this idea of life coming from Mars to to Earth. Certainly not the only one. And uh, that notion doesn't occur out of a vacuum as far as literature yeah. is concerned. The yeah. idea that Mars has been associated with, even in the ancient imagination, with the notion of possibility for life. Mm-hmm. So 1960s was when the robot spacecraft started um, started trying to visit Mars, and as I mentioned, the first few were disappointing. 1976, the Viking landers. Yep. And right now there is a fleet. I don't know how big that fleet is, but uh, according to Bob McDonald, there is a fleet of international robots that are orbiting Mars. So it's not just NASA. It's and the. Um, Everybody's uh, in Americans, on the game. Everybody's in on the game. It's Everybody new, wants to know what's going on. It's going to be the new space race. It was just, you know, it was only two competitors the first time around, the Soviet Union and, and the United States of America. And it was get to the moon and put the flag on there or circle the earth. And now, you know, space race has been opened up. Right now, mm-hmm. Mars is the new frontier, right? Everybody wants to get out there and get involved and find out what's going on learn. Right? Yeah. Extra solar science, extraterrestrial science, right? Whether you're studying fossilized microbes or or geography, or climatology, everybody's interested, yeah, right? Because yeah. to look at Mars, from what I've read anyways, in many ways, is to understand what will happen to Earth, right? Yeah. As it was on Mars, so shall it be on Earth, right? <laughs> or as it was on Mars, so shall it be on Earth, yeah, right? Yeah. If they went through a period, right, that was more Mars, more Earth-like, yeah. they've passed that now. So looking at Mars could be looking at our our, our future, yeah. right? And that would be, yeah. ooh, that'd be kind of And crazy. it is our closest neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to know something about... Absolutely. Some, so when we're looking at what God to talk about, um, Mars, of course, is a Roman god of war, and Ares is the Greek god. But I think we need to talk a little bit about the difference between Ares and Mars, because for the most part, the Romans adopted other gods 
Greek gods Greek and kind gods, of map yeah. them onto uh, Roman ideas and kind of link them up. But I think the link between Aries and Mars isn't... It's tenuous. Yeah, yeah. Mars is a very different character in Roman mythology he, he is. than he is in, um, than Aries is in Greek. So I thought we could maybe just talk a little bit about about what Aries is, is like generally and maybe how that's different from Mars and then go and look at some of the texts about Aries. Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, it's absolutely true that the Roman Mars, right, is, is, is quite different uh, in the pantheon of, of Roman gods uh, uh, compared to Ares, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Ares is the son of Zeus and uh, his wife Hera, right? And um, he also has big... two sisters, Elithuia and Hebe, right? Yeah. And that's their only child. That's their only children, right? Zeus has thousands of kids. Yeah. Hera has children on her own as well, but this is their, that is their only, there are their only three children that are sort of produced in sort of the sacred marriage, the Hieros Gamos, as the Greeks would call it. And each one of them have very different manifestations and very different sort of timai or spheres of influence, right? Yeah. So, um, and Aries is more of that, um, is more of a, I want to say elemental, like it's it's more of the the war and the battle lust and yeah. the courage that comes from war. Yeah, because um, lots of the Greek gods are war gods in yeah. some sense, right? Yeah, um, they have different aspects of warfare. And Ares, his Timai, his sort of um, uh, his area of expertise, let me put it that way, or that which concerns and defines him, is a, a, not a particularly nice thing as far as sort of notions of. Greek civilization and morality and so mm-hmm. on that you, one might one might yeah. look on um, bloodlust and murder and manslaughter right and those types of things right and that's Ares and he compares with Athena who is also a, a warrior goddess yeah. Um, but yeah. Ares is that bold force and the strength and the tumult and confusion yeah. of battle whereas Athena is about the strategy and defense yes. of, of the city yeah. Um, worship of Ares was in, in ancient Greece was not very general. Like there were temples to him in Athens, to Gia, Thebes, Sparta, yeah. but yeah. it but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't widespread. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was associated, or his his worship primarily associated with Thrace and Scythia and Colchis, so kind of yeah. areas more on the edge on of, the edge, the marginal the zones, world. a bit wild, a bit rough. You He's, know. He's often depicted either as a mature bearded warrior mm-hmm. or, interestingly, a nude beardless youth. Yeah. So kind of one or the other. Yeah. And his attributes, warrior helmet, shield, spear, and sword, makes it kind of difficult sometimes to pick him out in art because yeah. he just looks like any other any yeah. other warrior. Mm-hmm. I did find out, though, that um, he, the serpent was one of his sacred animals. Yes. As was a vulture. And yes. the owl as well. Sure. And the vulture and the owls were considered portents of war and sedition. He's also associated with dogs, oh, right? Oh, Baiting dogs, dogs okay. that often you find on the battlefield, um, you know, uh, uh, eating or feasting mm-hmm. upon feral dogs, the fallen soldiers, right? Um, so that sort of, and also the circling vultures, you know, you, you get that image that they, they circle over prey. They know where battlefields are. They know you know, where dead men lie and rot in the sun. That's the playground of Ares. He's on nobody's side. In the Iliad, he fights on both sides. He kills Trojans and he kills Greeks. He doesn't care. He's the manifestation of the action of killing, right? And so in that that idea, we can see his associated animals are part of that realm. Kind of dark. So, so just to compare briefly then with with Mars, and I'll I'll keep this brief Mm -hmm. so that we can move on, on, on to our passage, but... Mars, as a Roman god, he's super important. He's second only to Jupiter. He's he's one of the three of the uh, the the triad. Yeah. Um, what is that called? The Capitoline. Yeah, the Capitoline triad. Something, something like that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yeah. not. I'm not as strong in, in yeah. my in my Roman stuff. He's a god of war and an agricultural guardian. Yes. So he yeah. he has those aspects of fertility and fecundity, right? Which that, I don't think we get with the Greek Aries at all, do we? Not, you like do, that. you know. Oh, we do? You okay. do a bit. And that's kind of one of the more fascinating things, and that's why I found this one to be uh, kind of fascinating on the Greek side. But we'll get to the, okay. that a little bit later, right? Okay. Yeah. So Mars is the most prominent of the military gods in the religion of the Roman army. Yes. Um, you may have heard of the Campus Martius in yeah. Rome, which is 
the field of war, um, so like a gathering, it, used for all kinds of, of, of different events. Yeah, the marshalling of armies. But named after yeah. Mars. Marshal, the word marshal, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's the idea, it's not, it's not the violence of war that mm -hmm. Mars is. Mars is the military power as a way to secure peace. Yeah. So it's not just kind of this mindless force. Yeah, not that, the Greek that, notion. That, that the Roman uses. notion is very different. Um, and he's also, Mars is also, also really ties into the mytholo mythology of Rome as a city and a state and an empire mm -hmm. um, because he is the mythological father of the mythological <laughs> Romulus and Remus. Ah, uh, yes. And, um, and, <laughs> so and that makes Ovid, him a progenitor god, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and R Romulus, of course, being the founder of Rome, mm -hmm. the mythological, and and Ovid, Ovid gives gives this story, um, and he's also the son of Juno or Hera alone. So he's born only from from Hera mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. well. So, so Mars is one of the ones that we have to be careful mapping Aries. Yeah. We're going to talk about Aries because. Yeah. about the Greek gods. Yeah. But it's not a perfect I believe, not a perfect fit yeah, uh, between it's between not a perfect Aries fit. and Mars. So and, and, and you know, to be really honest, none of them really, really are. No. Right? No. Because it, it, they have the same sort of functions in some way and they have the same sort of names, but the society the Roman society that adopts them and takes them morphs them to suit their needs, right? So they become yeah. unique. Yeah. Right? I just thought this one was worth talking yeah. about because mm -hmm. There's a very it's it's oh, a very it's a pronounced, stark contrast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you found some primary sources for us that you're going to explain to us because people are probably getting tired wow. of my voice. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a few things that we had to run through, and I'm sure there are many small fragments. There are fragments in in the Shield of Heracles by Hesiod. There are fragments from Hellenistic sources uh, all over the place that we could use, but we we kind of boiled it down to three: um, Homeric hymns. Right, we've been working on the Homeric hymns. Homeric hymns is your go-to source whenever it comes to defining a god or goddess in the Greek pantheon. So we do have a small Homeric hymn. We do have a section from the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, in Book Eight. We have a, a small part we could comment on in the Iliad, uh, and that we've sort of already talked about slightly. Um, and uh, yeah, just a couple of spots in Ovid and so on. Okay, so what one do you want to start with? I, I don't. I think we should start with the Homeric hymn. It's short and it's kind of unique because it doesn't really seem like what we would expect. Ares, exceedingly mighty, rider of chariots, golden-helmeted, strong-spirited, shield-carrier, guardian of cities, armed in bronze, strong-handed, untiring spear-bearer, defender of Olympus, father of victory, successful in war, ally of Themis, a ruler for enemies, leader of truly just men, staff-bearer of men's prowess, you who spin your fire-bright sphere among the planets with their seven paths in the sky, where your fiery colts ever keep you above the third orbit. Hear me, defender of mortals, giver of flourishing youth, shining down a gentle light from above on my head, on my life, and my strength in war, so that I may be able to ward off bitter cowardice from my head, and to bend the deceptive impulse of my soul with my wits, and to restrain the sharp fury of my heart which provokes me to enter the icy cold din of battle. But you, blessed one, grant me courage to stay within the carefree bounds of peace while escaping the conflict of enemies and violent death. Ta-da, we're back. Okay. Aries. Now, reading that, and when hearing that, right, it doesn't sound a lot like what you would expect, right? There seems to be a very different tone to that hymn. Yes. Um, most of the hymns that we've looked at are kind of more of a story. Like, they're still in praise of the god, but they're, they're telling us a story about, about the gods. Mm-hmm. So Whereas not, this one is just—it really feels like reading a shopping list of names. <laughs> well, for our students, yeah, absolutely. There is no real narrative, right? And in the history of this one, there's been some speculation that this, in fact, might be much later, and in fact, is an Orphic hymn that comes from the Orphic tradition because of the sort of long laundry list of epithets, and all those epithets are are um, some or many of them, I would say, without without exception. Um, are all ones where um, a petitioner, a, a someone, uh, is asking for Mars, uh, Mars' uh, Aries' assistance, right? Okay. And um, 
those those things are not when we're talking about you know when Zeus him, Zeus himself in the Iliad describes Ares as the most hateful god, and then we were just a few moments ago talking about him as being associated with violent manslaughter and murder and so on. You know that him is not like that god, right? Yeah. And um, because because it's much later. That's why. So when are the Orphic? I'm I'm well. The Orphic tradition the is, Orphic is quite tradition. old, but the, but it, it is little known. And in fact, they they were saying that the reason why this was included by the scholiast or the compiler was because out of out of a sense of religious obligation. Okay. And that there weren't any hymns to Ares. Um, and and this one was, but it existed in the Orphic tradition, and uh, so he he felt the need to add it. And they and they added it to give it some parity, right? So I have a note here that that there have been arguments made that this is actually from the fifth century A.D. So mm-hmm. this is like a thousand years after the rest of the Homeric hymns, or or the ones that were more secure. About yeah, or thereabouts, the right? Hymns. Yeah, yeah. Some Hellenistic scholar, right? Or or at the the um, library at Alexandria was compiling these, and we have these hymns, and we or they or he or she that matter felt the need to include this hymn now that's a bit contentious but just by looking at it you can already tell that it has a very different character mm-hmm. to the type of of figure that Ares is in the archaic period or the yeah. type of figure that Ares was expected to be in the classical era or that we see in the Odyssey of right. the Iliad or that, that we see in these other yeah. sources that we'll talk about right so but this one's still very fascinating there's still much to be said about what what is in there um, this is a deity that um, seems like um, he can assist warriors, right, on the battlefield, assist them with courage. Uh, he's described as being a sceptered king of manliness. So we see that sort of masculine quality of warfare and the warrior is being attributed to the this this god Ares, right? Um, and it's interesting. That's, that's interesting. And it's interesting here, too, that um, he's he's... It says he's the father of victory, but I mean, yeah. he's not really. Victory is the daughter of Styx and Pallas, but he's associated here with victory and Themis, which is right. And so we're seeing that idea here mm-hmm. uh, that we see more with the Roman god Mars, this sure. association of war and mm-hmm. right. So, may, so maybe that also points to a later, a later date with it as well. I suspect a certain degree of uh, kind of... Um uh, cleansing of the image of Ares, um, and or one that might have already been there but was overlooked because of what it represents in the literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in this sort of male-dominated patriarchal society, we would expect or think that a war god like Ares would be praised and placed on a sort of higher um, pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. And where, when in fact he is not. Right? He has no centralized area of cult worship. He has no major shrines, for example. And like I said earlier, Zeus calls him the most reviled god, right? the most mm-hmm. hated one. Right? Um, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, mm-hmm. but I, I was just thinking the, the image that we see here then, as you said, this rehabilitated image of sorts, mm-hmm. in Iliad Book 5, line 880... Mm-hmm. Um, Athena here is talking to Diomedes, and she says, um, you don't have to fear Ares or any other of the immortals. Mm -hmm. Look who is here beside you. Drive your horses directly at Ares, and when you're in range, strike. Don't be in awe of Ares. He's nothing but a shifty lout. He promised Hera and me he would fight against Troy and help the Greeks. Now he's turned Trojan and abandoned us. Well, yeah, see, that's it. See, uh, Athena, in this context, right, this is Mm -hmm. the... You know, this is the epic genre. This is Homer. Yeah. This is the archaic. And in this in this world, in this sort of thought world, Ares is, of course, that that evil force, right, of of, of bloodshed and murder on the battlefield. But Athena knows his weakness because Athena is a tactician, and Athena that's her realm, right? And she knows how to strike Ares, and she, she tells Diomedes how to do it. Do it directly. Go right at him, right? And and he does because he's he he's not one to uh, put up much of a defense. Not like Athena. Um, yeah, and, and, it, and it goes quickly. on, and that passage goes on, I won't read it all, but it goes mm-hmm. on to dis- de- describe um, the, the yell that Ares lets out when, uh, when, he's, when his belly is pierced uh, with, with the spearhead. Yeah, wounded um, in battle. Yeah. 
It's not very often that gods are wounded by the actions of great heroes, but we have an exception to it here in the Iliad. We have the wounding of, the, of Ares. We have the wounding of Aphrodite in this scene by Diomedes, his, his Aristia, his greatest moment, right? Um, and one of the things that I like about that hymn that makes it so foreign in many ways is that a lot of times we talk about this concept in mythology called the reconciliation of opposites, mm -hmm. where gods or goddesses or myths themselves reconcile um, uh, for us uh, the universe by exposing sort of the opposite quality, right? And 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 in this in this myth, um, the 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 hymn I mean talks about uh, wickedness and um, evil, right? And the word is kakotes, right? And it's a prayer for peace, right? In that hymn, he's talking about peace, right? So why would you ask Ares for peace? Well, because the gods and mythology in general, because of this concept of the reconciliation of offices, a god of violent warfare and manslaughter, right, uh, would also know about peace. Just as Apollo can hurt and heal, a god of war can also be familiar with peace, right? And this is this is part of the reconciliation of opposites that we see. Like, example, Hephaestus is often petitioned in order to suppress fire. Right? Okay. Whereas Ares is petitioned in this case to suppress the violence uh, and strife of warfare and bring about peaceful resolution, right? Um, so th that's that. I find that kind of interesting, right? There, there's, there's much to be said about that small small little hymn. And well, and it also talks about the planet specifically. It does. Um, because astrological it says, information. You who spin your fire-bright sphere among the planets with yeah. their seven paths in the sky. So they included the moon as one of the planets. Mm -hmm. And they. I think we've talked about this on an earlier podcast, but these uh, planets had different... Um, traveled in kind of spheres. I imagine it's like a series of nesting balls. And yeah. um, they traveled on these different layers in... or orbits in in um in space um where your fiery cold so this idea that the planet like helios is mars is being pulled across the sky yeah. by by horses yeah it's fiery because um, it's red ever keep you above the third orbit the yeah. third orbit being the one that they thought that that mars mercury that, that then mars venus would, then mars yeah. mars the third orbit the third firmament the third yeah. crystal sphere that contains the fiery orb of mars as they spin about Earth, right? Yeah. The the naked eye planets, planet is a Greek term that means wanderer, wanderer yeah. right? Because they are the ones that move through the sky, yeah. whereas they, we have the fixed stars, yeah. right? So the classical planets, of course, is the sun, then it is the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and that's it, because yeah. you can't see any others, right? And other cultures in the Near East have been looking at these planets and giving them names as well. Mars is associated with the Babylonian war god Nergal yep. because of his fiery capacity as well. Yep. And there is much to be said about, about that. So that, that talks about the fiery, fiery sphere. Fire right? bright sphere. Yeah, yeah. fire fiery bright sphere. fiery sphere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he is also here, uh, defender of mortals, giver of flourishing youth. So yeah. we're seeing that connection um, that... Yeah. That we see with Mars, with 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 fertility, um, with fertility and youth. Yeah, yeah. It, you notice how that comes much later, because in fact, if this is Orphic, it's much much later. Yeah, right. Like it it it, it could like be much it, later than Homer. Yeah, during its yeah. during its codification, yeah. it might have been yeah. of an earlier tradition. But I'm saying that there is a quality, and and you know what, it, it's it could be regional because even on Mytilene and Sappho, for example, that she has an epithalamion, a wedding song, and Sappho is archaic. Right, she's uh, on Lesbos, and she has a wedding song, Fragment One Hundred Two, that talks about Ares and as the bridegroom, and in Greek that word is the gambros, right? And Ares is associated with uh, being the bridegroom, right? And uh, the bride uh, could be, in this case, Aphrodite, right? Okay, it's unnamed, it's not named, but uh, in in the Epithalamion Fragment One Hundred Two from Sappho, and that's that's ancient as well. You see that association of Mars with the bridegroom, right? It's, she says, he comes the husband and walks like Ares, right? And then he says, he stands the husband as long and tall as Ares, right? So this is part of this wedding song where the bride and the bridegroom are being compared to gods, are being compared to Ares or Aphrodite, right? 
And those are themes that Sappho plays with continuously. That is a really great segue to the next passage that we want to look at. Okay. From the Odyssey. All right. Okay, so the second passage that you had found for us to look at is from the Odyssey, book eight. Another Homeric one. Yes, Odyssey. and it's actually a really long one, so we're not going to read it um, aloud to it's you. A, it's a very famous, very famous mythological scene. Yes, right? Ovid also tells this yes. scene um, yeah. in his in his it's much a later piece. work. So it's it's lines two sixty six to three sixty six for those who want to look in it up. Book eight. In book eight. Um, so the general story that's happening here is Odysseus is at the court of the Phaeacians and they're having a singing contest. And Demodocus is um, the Phaeacian uh, bard and he starts the contest. He, he picks up his lyre and he starts singing the story about the love of Ares and sweet garlanded Aphrodite. Yeah. And the general gist of this story, just the plot for in case anyone's not familiar with it, is that Ares and Aphrodite are in love. They're having an affair. Aphrodite is actually married to Hephaestus. Yes. Hephaestus does not want to be cuckolded. Yes. And he uh, spins this really fine net, puts it over top of their bed. So he takes off. Ares comes to Aphrodite. And they get trapped in this net, yes. and all of the gods have a good laugh at um, at this at affair. And then um, Hephaestus demands recompense from um, Ares um, based on the, the the societal norms around around um, adultery. Yeah. I think that's about it in a nutshell. Sure, it's just a it's a binding narrative, right? It's about mm -hmm. shame. It's about two lovers caught by a husband. So, um, again, and when I read this, um, and we had talked about this a little bit, um, because Ovid, um, a, a Roman poet, also tells the same story, only, of course, using the names Mar Mars, Mars and Venus, um, it really doesn't even seem to be that much about Ares in some ways. No, it's not. It's just one of the more famous ones with him in it. Yeah. And it kind of, it, you can read much into it as far as literary interpretation is concerned, you know, of course, because we were talking about Ares as being this figure of manliness. Mm -hmm. And then we have the ultimate man, right? And then we have the ultimate female, right? Mm -hmm. But what's being expressed is not sort of the ultimate man and the ultimate woman. It's more like the ultimate, sort of the pol polar forms of sexuality in both male and female. So Ares expresses sort of a violent sexual quality. And Aphrodite expresses a, a, a hyper sort of sexual quality as well. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the pantheon of gods, it makes perfect sense that these two should be attracted together. And right? Aphrodite has it been causes married... disaster. The sparks will fly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Aphro Aphrodite, who we talked about in our last episode, she's married to Hephaestus, who is a deformed god. He's yeah. he's he's, he's a less god because mm -hmm. he's lame. Mm -hmm. Different. There's a couple of different mm -hmm. stories about how he becomes lame. Mm -hmm. um, so he's definitely not the image of a manly man. No, he's right? not. Like, he, so here's this this very um, voluptuous, virile woman. Can you use virile for women? Sure, why not? Okay. Handsome you could use for a woman, too. <laughs> um, yeah. Very sexual Aphrodite, who, yeah. this, this force of she's attraction. She's paired up with this nerd. And she's yeah. paired up yeah. with, well, it's not just like, yeah, so, so like the most undesirable it's of like the gods. It's like Marilyn Monroe, really. right? And was it Stephen Miller? or yeah. Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, for example. Right or Marilyn Monroe and well, I was going to say Joe DiMaggio, but Joe DiMaggio was like a great, you know. Athlete. Yeah, he was a sports hero. Yeah he, yeah, he was a great baseball baseball athlete. But 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 it's kind of like Arthur Miller in a way, where you have like this old kind of father kind of dude who's like a playwright and like wears glasses and is kind of odd, and then you have this goddess of sexuality in immortal form. Anyways, I guess <laughs> with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. So yeah, but anyways, these two are are you know, and that whole cliche about opposites attract is a bunch of bunk, but they really don't fit because they're they're not like they're. Things that are alike attract, right? Yeah. That, that's just the way things are. But they, they, you have this figure of Hephaestus and you have this figure of Venus. Now, I can quickly tell you how they came to be betrothed, if you would like. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when um, uh, Hera, you know, um, was confronted with Hephaestus, she was obviously disgusted because of his lame and less than perfect quality. And she hurls him from Mount Olympus, right? So he plummets from the sky, literally the, the classic kind of mythological cliche of the god that falls to earth. 
uh, like David Bowie, Man That Falls in the Earth, and lands on the island of Lesbos, right? And that's where he is associated as his center of cult worship. So he's there for a long time, right? And, and getting his strength and so on and being nurtured and nursed back to health and so on and so forth. And he hatches up this plot. Uh, and the plot is um, to get back onto Mount Olympus, but he, he delivers uh, to Hera uh, a, a chair and, uh, and says that she can sit in it, right? And so uh, she sees this beautiful chair crafted by her son, and she goes and sits in the chair, right? Well, the magic chair, right, crafted by Hephaestus, yeah. binds her, right, in place, uh, and the binding of a god is a terrible crime. And the rest of the gods, in this sort of reverse of the very little scene that we're talking about, have a little bit of a laugh at Hera, and she's pretty imperial herself and doesn't enjoy being laughed at. But um, she gets, she'll bound in this chair, and then she asks, uh, she's like, oh, you've got to get me out of this thing, and they try to, get, to try to get her out of this chair, and they can't. At one point, Ares does make his way into this myth, because Ares does go to Hephaestus and say, release our mother, right, from this chair, but Hephaestus uh, turns him away, it says, by firing, you know, shards of metal at him or something like that, and Ares fly, flies away uh, under the onslaught of Hephaestus's, you know, artifice. But um, Dionysus later goes and um, talks to him, and, one of the, and they get drunk together. But one of the reasons why that they're doing this is because Zeus said, whoever gets my wife, Hera, out of this chair will be married to Aphrodite, ah. right? So, and... and this is one of the reasons why this was the motive behind it. And Ares, and when, when Dionysus came down to talk to, to Hephaestus, the Roman Vulcan, and said, you got to get her out of this chair because then, you know, if you do, then you will be the one who gets to marry Aphrodite. He did initially say no. He was not even, cons not even going to do that. He was happy in keeping Hera in perpetual bondage, bondage, right? But he was lured up there by Dionysus, got him a little hammered, right? And... And one thing led to another, and Zeus had to fulfill his word and give Aphrodite to this lesser child, right, um, Hephaestus. And that's how the two of them were betrothed. And that became a great sort of feather in the cap, metaphorically, for a god like Hephaestus to have a goddess wife like Aphrodite, right? Yeah. But he's not a stay-at-home kind of guy, Hephaestus, right? He's working constantly in the shop and doing things for the gods, right? So while she's, you know, at home, you know, when he leaves, that's when Mars comes knocking on the door, yeah. right? Because the two of them are just sort of perfectly drawn together. It's a, it's a, um, it's like gravity, right? It's like one of those things. It's like Helen and Paris. You get them together, and magic happens, and that's what happens right there. And, and Helios lets us in, you know, uh, uh, to this little tale. So Demodocus sings this story in the court of the Phaeacians yeah. about, so, about that trapping. Right? Yeah. So here we have 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 Hephaestus who has trapped two gods, who's bound two gods. Yeah. Um, and he says, um, the key, he blames Hera for it. Yeah. He says, Aphrodite, daughter of Zeus, forever holds me in little favor, but she loves ruinous Ares because he is handsome and goes around, goes sound on his feet while I am misshapen from birth. Yes. And for this, I hold no other responsible but my own father and mother. And I wish they'd never got me. Um, and then he says, um, he continues a little bit and then says, but then my fastenings and my snare, so the net that they're trapped in, yeah. will contain them until her father pays back in full all my gifts of courtship I paid out into his hand for the sake of his bitch-eyed daughter. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's Aphrodite he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's so, talking about dowry and bride price. Right? Yeah, so the um, gods um, gather and they have a good laugh at... They do. Um, both, both Ares and, Except and for the Aphrodite. goddesses. The goddesses do not come. Only no. the male gods go and look and snicker at the naked Aphrodite and the naked Ares. Yes. What's the, what's the term? In flagrante delecto. Right? Yes. So there yeah. they are, right? They're, they're chained together, pulled together by this sort of adamantine web. And they can't escape. They're bound, right? And the binding of a god is a great dishonor. But it's even more so now because it's public. In this idos, this great shame, they're bound together in this uh, perpetual act of lovemaking, right? And the gods are looking, and they're looking, and, and they're all having their chuckle. And Hermes is one of them, uh, has a very interesting little scene. He's like, "Gee, I wish I I was in Ares' yeah. place." All the rest of them are like, "Oh, oh the hardship, yeah, yeah, oh, it's shameful." <laughs> I, I, you know, they go and look, and they have their laugh, and they want to leave, right? But Hermes is is just fascinated by it because he has a perpetual crush on the goddess Aphrodite. And, and it's it's eventually Poseidon that persuades Hephaestus to let them go, and and he it says, is. if you let Ares go, and if he if he doesn't pay yes. his due, right, uh, I his will penalty, vote for him. 
I'll do it. And yes. so then, um, so then Hephaestus just says, um, it's not right that I should deny you this. Mm -hmm. And he lets them he go. And then, them. and it's kind of interesting straightway, the two of them, when they were set free of the fastening, though it was strong, sprang up and Ares took his way thraceward while she, Aphrodite, lover of laughter, went back to Paphos and Cyprus, yeah. where lies her sacred precinct and her smoky altar. Um, so, they they take off their home between the, with their tails between their legs. They do. They get the hell um, which, out of there. Which I think is uh, yeah. is is really cute. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the big story that we really have about Ares. Though, well, it's isn't cool. It? Like the Poseidon episode at the end tells us that the rest of the gods had a bit of a chuckle. Yeah. But Poseidon is very stern. He's very serious, and he does have a violent quality too. That in, in some regards could be akin to a uh, type of Aryan nature, right? But he does not laugh. So the text specifically says he does not laugh, and he asks for Ares to be released because of the shame of binding. He says, yeah. it's, so it, it's inappropriate what they've done, but the, but Hephaestus but has also... but crossed the line, yeah. right? And um, this is something that gods do not do to other gods with, uh, unless you're like Zeus uh, and uh, have a really um, a problem with a figure, say like Prometheus. Uh, this is something that this family members shouldn't really be doing to family members, yeah. right? So he vouches for Ares, of course, and he's not very happy about it, but um, he is released. Right? Now, you mentioned um, something interesting the other day when we were just talking briefly about this passage, uh -huh. about why Odysseus, well, yeah. uh, why, why Demodocus, Demodocus. Demodocus, sorry. Um, why he's telling this story. And I just thought that might be interesting for our listeners who are more familiar with the Odyssey. Why does Odysseus need to hear this story? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I've changed around a little bit on it. First, I thought it was a bit of a cautionary tale, considering the circumstances uh, whereby which, uh, which no, Odysseus finds yeah. himself on the island of the Phaeacians with the unmarried maiden, the daughter of of Elsinus Nausicaa, who assisted him and brought him into the court. So you have uh, kind of a, a series of characters that are sort of floating around Odysseus at this particular time. You have King Elsinus of Phaeacia, you have his wife Arete, you have Demodocus, of course, the bard, and Nausicaa, the young girl. And um, Odysseus is um, not breaking any rules, but as you read it, you get this sort of idea that there is a connection being made, a parallel being drawn between Odysseus and Nausicaa, setting her up as a potential bride for a character like Odysseus. I know the stories about him getting back to Ithaca and getting back to Penelope, uh, but... Um, it's not unusual, his, unusual for him to be waylaid by women. It's not, and he's constantly being pulled off course, and Demodocus might be using this as a cautionary tale to signal, you know, don't, um, uh, don't go down that path and, you know... Um, get involved with Nausicaa because you're going to be caught and then you will be trapped and, and you won't get back home, right? So mm -hmm. it's more food for, um, uh, it's more fodder for thought, right? Food for thought for Odysseus. But I also thought as well that um, it does get Odysseus and it does get, considering the context of where this occurs, does get the audience thinking um, about what's going on back with Penelope. Mm -hmm. Although this is a dialogue, a story going on, and we're in the sort of court of the Phaeacians, um, it, we can't help but think about Penelope and her situation with the suitors, or a suitor, right? Someone who she may fall in lust with, and you might see in an, you might see in this story an analogy between Aphrodite and, and Mars. I mean, Aphrodite and Ares, an analogy between Penelope and, say, um, one of the more vocal or more beautiful suitors, right? Uh, and that um, that situation could lead uh, to ruin, right? So it's making Odysseus think about, you know, it's, it's, it's nice here and all, and I could stay here and I could live here and I would be happy, but I can't. I need to get back home to Penelope. Right, mm -hmm. so I, I think that there's some something of that going on, and the whole sort of parallels between the between lovers' stories are 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 something that makes you that you think about when you hear this story of Demodocus at this point in the Odyssey. You know, you have Ares and Aphrodite, of course. You have, of course, Paris and Helen to think about. Then you have, you know, all sorts of other things that um, could 
could help us understand you know what this little narrative is about at this particular spot but i I really think it's kind of a cautionary tale okay yeah yeah um so did uh I think we had one more really brief mention um in Iliad five line three eighty five mm-hmm. um a scene between um Aphrodite and Aphrodite, I think, and Ares mm-hmm. um, during the Trojan War. Um, did you want to say anything about that? What, Homer Iliad 5? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a small little scene that describes, again, a binding scene, right? Mm-hmm. It, um, um, a, an episode that occurs where uh, Ares himself is bound by two giants, uh, Otos and uh, Otos and Ephaltes, I believe their names are. And uh, he's bound in chains and then imprisoned into a bronze urn, a gigantic bronze urn. And I think it's like three months and ten days or something like that. He languishes in there until finally he is released by Hermes, which I thought was fascinating, right? The trickster god Hermes. And uh, so Hermes gets him out of there and he becomes the agent of his release. Now, nowhere do they talk about Hermes and Ares ever having any kind of relationship as a result of it, but it's one of those small little episodes, one of those small little bits of information that exist Mm -hmm. in fragmentary form, sprinkled throughout the Iliad to tell us a little bit more about the quality of Ares. You know, he... He doesn't have a really good track record. For a powerful god of warfare, he doesn't do particularly well in the Iliad. And in this little scene in, in, in Book 5, he's, he's even trapped and, and uh, bound by a couple of giants, right? Yeah. So um, he, he is, uh, of course, powerful, but he's not too successful. Um, all right. So um, I think that brings us to the end of our passages about... Berries, unless you had yeah, anything it's, it's, else that you wanted. It's, as, as we've said a couple of times now, it has been a challenging one to do. Um, simply from the Greek perspective, there's not... I don't know. <laughs> we had the opposite problem, I think, with, uh, with Aphrodite uh, last episode, where there was so much to choose from. It was difficult to choose just, um, just a, a couple of passages. Yeah, well, you know, when, when Homer talks about... Mars, when Homer talks about Ares, I mean, and Aphrodite in that scene, that Demodocus sings that story. And he does it for his own reasons, right? And I mm-hmm. suggested perhaps it was a cautionary tale in getting Odysseus to think about Penelope and the threat of the suitors, or perhaps linking him to Nausicaa and so on, which much of that book does. Um, but when Ovid picks it up, he uses that very same scene in a slightly different way. He uses it to talk about Helios and to talk about shaming, and then how... Um, Helios then, I mean, how Venus then seeks revenge on Helios by making him fall in love with another person. So oh, that, yeah. that's, that's part of, of with another uh, mortal. So that's yeah. part of this sort of tit for tat, and that's the way like Ovid uses it, right? And then again in, in Ovid in book three, um, if there's any sort of area that can be associated directly with, with Ares, it's Thebes uh, in the land of Cadmus, and Cadmus in the story of Europa. And the Cadmians... Uh, the Spartoi, the sown men, come from the serpent of Ares. So when Cadmus, under the advice of Athena, so, uh, sows the, the serpent's teeth in the earth, they rise up out of the ground, right? Mm-hmm. The sown men. And they immediately set upon each other in Book 3 of Ovid. But one of the things that that's telling us is that those men, right, are bellicose, right? They are violent, right? Because they are the Spartoi. They are the men, right, of, of the sown men. And and Cadmus does slay the serpent of Ares, and he sows the serpent's teeth in three. And But part of their problem, and it's a Greek problem, so I think it's a parallel for a larger Greek problem, is this sort of constant internecine systemic civil warfare that occurs mm-hmm. in Greece. When Greeks fight, it's a national pastime. They fight each other, <laughs> right? So in book three... One of the sown men, one of the very first things he says is, says, don't take up arms when he's talking to Cadmus. He says, it's our civil war, stay out of it. And they immediately turn on each other. So Cadmus stands back while they destroy each other. Uh, and they kill each other until there are only five of them, right? And then Athena t- um, stops it. And um, the last one is a guy named Echion. And he's one of the most famous of the sown men. And he throws down his weapons and um, he prays to... Um, Cadmus and Athena uh, um, for peace, right? And you were just mentioning, of course, this this serpent. Yes. Ares is also associated Associate with the serpent serpents. that guards the golden fleece. Yes, yes. Um, that's that's another one of yeah, his. and all serpents, yeah. right? Snakes too. Yeah, yeah. So but those, I, like those 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 two yeah. um, 
specifically. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and as Aries moves forward and Mars moves forward in time into even, you know, the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, becomes his manliness and virility, his qualities of manliness and virility become amplified, and he becomes more of a romantic character, becomes mm. more of a character of chivalry and more of a character of, of course, of war, right? But that martial aspect that exists in the hearts of all men, right? Uh, well, was thought to exist in the hearts of all men, right? Men are from Mars, women mm -hmm. are from Venus, <laughs> right? All right, so I think then we will wrap it up there. Um, I think we've managed to managed to fill an hour pretty pretty well with with sure. Aries. We weren't sure if we would make it or not. Yeah. All right, so um, our next stop, our next uh, episode is going to be. Oh, well, we're, yeah. we've done Mars. What do we got yeah. here? Uh, we're going to Jupiter, Jupiter. Unless you want to stop yeah. at the asteroid belt and survey a couple of asteroids. I don't know. We might include um, them in the Jupiter, the we Jovian could, well, we could podcast. Do, uh, I think Jupiter's got a lot of moons. Jupiter yeah, and Saturn so we'll, have lots of moons. We'll just stick with we Jupiter. Could do, um, we could go through the planets and then come back mm -hmm. and do some of the asteroids and the comets and okay, stuff. Okay, so at, Jupiter at will end. be our next stop. So we'll stop at Jupiter next. Right. Um, Jove himself, the king of the gods, father yes. of gods and men. Yes. Right? Um, Zeus. Yes, Zeus. So... Join us for our next episode in another week or maybe two weeks, depending on how busy we get. Um, and do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ines Allison. And I'm at Darren Sundstrom. And this has been Myth Take. We're a fresh, fresh take, take on, on ancient, ancient myths. <laughs> <laughs>